Support comes from the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, James Cancer Hospital, and Solov Research Institute. Just as no two people are exactly the same, neither are their cancers. At the OSU CCC James, there is no routine cancer. Learn more at cancer.osu.edu. Welcome to All Sides with Ann Fisher. During the pandemic, more Americans qualified for food assistance and cash aid, and it helped a lot. One nonpartisan study found that the food benefits alone kept more than 4 million Americans above the poverty line and lowered child poverty by 14%. Now many states are returning to pre-pandemic levels of assistance, but with a post-pandemic economy of high inflation, and that means increased costs at the grocery store. We're talking about the impacts on children today. Dana Thompson is a senior research scientist at Child Trends, where she studies child poverty. Her most recent work is titled Lessons from a Historic Decline in Child Poverty. Her work was highlighted in a recent New York Times article. We'll post a link at WOSU.org slash all sides. Dana Thompson, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So before the pandemic, from 1993 to 2019, the child poverty rate dropped 59%, which is huge. You called it unprecedented. What were the factors in that case? Sure. So child poverty has long been seen um, as an intractable problem in the U.S. So we would see child poverty go up in times of economic recession and down in times of economic booms. But across time, it seemed to remain fairly stable. But as you noted in recent decades, so from 1993 um, to the present, our country has seen a really remarkable decline in child poverty. Um, in 1993, about one in four kids in the US were experiencing poverty, meaning that their household resources were not sufficient to meet even their, their most basic needs. And by 2019, that number had declined to to about one in 10. So our team decided to look a little more closely at what was behind this decline. Um, and we see really kind of three buckets of factors that influence child poverty. Um, the first is uh, broad economic factors. The second is inequities and opportunity, which tend to affect certain groups more than others. Um, and the third is social policy. And we really saw um, in our study that it was it was mainly these broad economic factors, as well as this huge growth in the social safety net that was responsible for this decline. Conservatives often credit the 1996 Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act. It was signed into law by President Clinton. And I remember the demonstrations at the State House and over that and worries about liberal Democrats, uh, wor worries from liberal Democrats that the system would fall apart um, if they enacted this law. What role did that play? So um, that's a great point. And, and I would say that what we've learned over the past 25 years is actually that the decline in child poverty has persisted through multiple administrations. So um, it is a mix of programs, um, and we have seen changes throughout this time period. As you rightly noted, there were three major changes happening um, that led to the decrease in the decline in uh, decrease in child poverty in the 1990s in particular. Um, there we saw a booming economy and a tight labor market um, during the 1990s. Um, we also saw, as you noted, welfare reform with um, 
work requirements and time limits being instated across a number of federal safety pro net programs. And we also saw critically expansions to what's called the earned income tax credit, which primarily serves as an income subsidy for low income working families. Um, and that is important because that credit expanded astronomically um, during this time period as well. Um, and it can it can um, provide um, essentially in the form of cash assistance um, benefits up to about um, $4,000, $5,000, even $6,000 per year. And that was critical really for lifting families um, above that, that poverty threshold. Yeah, a lot of times people focus on the work requirements and not the, ex ex the um, expanded benefits that went along with that. That's exactly right. And over this time period that we studied, we saw government programs um, that that are primarily aimed at low income children more than double in terms of our government's investment in those programs. And we saw the greatest growth in the programs in which we invested um, most, like the earned income tax credit. I think it's interesting um, when I was reading about this that the you. Uh examined and and looked at criteria differently than the government does to to arrive at that 59% reduction in child poverty and one of the things you you look at is um assistance like things things like food assistance um and medicaid expansion that was that's what i'm thinking of is medicaid expansion and the government doesn't look at the cost of health care they don't see it as a, a function of income i found that i found that kind of startling <laughs> right so that's actually a really interesting point um so as i as i mentioned at the the top of the segment um child poverty has really been seen as this intractable um problem over um actually since we've been measuring it since 1967. But in uh, 2009, we actually changed the way that we measured poverty in the US. So the traditional way of measuring poverty left out the impact of most safety net programs. So as you said, the government delivers tens of billions of dollars a year in nutritional aid and housing subsidies and in uh, refundable tax credits for low-income working families. And the old way of measuring poverty ignored all of this aid. So we weren't able to see the impact of that aid. Um, but the new measure of poverty um, actually does include government aid in its calculation of family okay. resources. And that's what we used in the study. And once you take that into account, we begin to see this huge decline in child poverty beginning in the early 1990s. Because working people weren't afraid of losing Medicaid uh, that was a big thing. Medicaid expanded to cover kids even, you know, at different levels of poverty. Um, it didn't have to be below the poverty line to qualify for it anymore. That's true. Um, and that's true for a few other programs as well. So the earned income tax credit also um, is is aimed primarily at low-income working families. Um, so you can be just below the poverty threshold, or you can also be um, above the poverty threshold and still receive um, uh, benefits from, from programs like Medicaid or the Earned Income Tax Credit. In your latest study, you used the example of a single mom with two kids who live in Columbus and I, uh, to illustrate life below the poverty line. And I wonder if you could give a thumbnail of that. Sure. So um, the 
poverty threshold in um, the U.S. on average is about um, $29,000 a year. Um, um, and our poverty threshold is actually, um, um, it, it varies by um, where you live. So the um, actual poverty threshold um, in Ohio, um, in certain areas of Ohio will be different than it is in other areas of the country. It also differs a little bit um, based on, um, on your family structure. So I believe the example that we had in um, our report was a single mother who was um, living just below the poverty threshold. So her income um, was based on um, a few dollars more than the minimum wage in Ohio at the time, but still was not able to lift her above that poverty threshold. She did, however, receive um, some government benefits um, like nutrition assistance, like the earned income tax credit. And it is with those benefits that she um, was able to make ends meet and that also lifted her above the poverty threshold. What do we know about the long-term consequences of childhood poverty? So that's a great question. So we know that having enough money to cover basic needs, including food, housing and utilities, health care and child care um, is essential for children's health and well-being. So there's a wealth of evidence that shows that growing up in poverty impacts virtually every dimension of child development from physical health to social and emotional development to behavioral and edu educational outcomes and eventual labor market success as adults. Um, so, so safety net programs, which, as I mentioned, include nutrition assistance and housing assistance, support children's health and well-being, both through the provision of basic needs, which have a direct impact on their health, but also by reducing household costs, um, which means that the household's limited resources can be redirected towards other critical needs. There was an interesting example in the New York Times piece that we'll post on our website, um, of a family that was above the poverty line, didn't qualify for much. Their child got in a horrible accident, and one of the one of the parents had to quit their job to take care of the child. The other one continued. It put them at a place where they were uh, eligible for really what most people would see as a modicum of aid, but it put them in a place where they were they gave them a safety net. Uh, they got the Medicaid coverage, which kept them from going bankrupt um, over the medical bills. And he ended up ironically being the first kid in the family to graduate from high school. That's right. It's it's really remarkable how um, you know ensuring both that children's critical needs are met, but also ensuring um, that children have um, the opportunities to grow, to learn, um, how that in early childhood in particular um, can lead to um, well-being down the road. So as you mentioned, um, the son in that story was among the first to to um, graduate from high school. So those are some of the impacts that we see when we do address children's needs early. Um, many state welfare programs were expanded during the pandemic and extended into 20 last year or this year in some cases, what did that do to uh, child poverty rates um, up until this year? 
So that's a great question. Um, our particular study um, did stop in uh, 2019, and we did that um, intentionally. Um, we were specifically um, wanting to look at um, the growth in the underlying factors that influence the decline in, in child poverty and felt that by including the temporary pandemic supports that would kind of muddy the waters a little bit. We wanted to look at um, this growth, um, this permanent growth over over time. Um, however, if we did um, include, say, 2020, the decline would have been even greater. So it would have been 69 percent. And if we um, look at the new numbers that were released by the Census Bureau um, this past September, we would have seen that in 2021, so amid a continuing public health crisis and an economic recession, child poverty actually continued its decline. So as uh, child poverty rates fell to their lowest recorded rates um, and declines were especially dramatic for children. So child poverty rates were nearly cut in half just from 2020 to 2021 from about 9.7% to 5.2%. Um, and a lot of that was due to the extraordinary government efforts to bolster economic th security through um, things like stimulus payments, uh, through the child tax credit, through the pandemic EBT, additional housing assistance. So a lot of temporary measures were enacted that really helped to um, continue this decline. Right. It underscored what all the prior success was about. Uh, but when they, as they roll back to pre-pandemic levels, we're in a dynamic economy. It's not the same economy it was back in 2019, right? That's exactly right. So I would expect um, child poverty to rise again um, from, a, from its 2021 levels, and that's uh, for two key reasons. So we're seeing much higher levels of inflation, a very different economy, as you said. And then there's also the expiration of these temporary pandemic um, supports that I that I mentioned. And they're expecting some kind of recession uh, in, 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 the, in the medium term, right? That, that's exactly right. And in previous recessions, um, we would normally expect child poverty rates to go up in the Great Recession and during the pandemic. Because we enacted these temporary measures, um, we were able to keep that child poverty rate stable. Um, but again, we needed those temporary measures in order to do that. We are talking about child poverty today, how uh, the 30 years prior to the pandemic saw a huge decline in child poverty. Uh, also, how the pandemic kind of layered on another level of support, uh, which is going away in most states this year or last year or this year. Uh, if you have a question or comment going forward, give us a call, 614-292-8513. My guest is Dana Thompson. She's a senior researcher at Child Trends, where she studies child poverty policies and practices that create more equitable access to economic mobility and conditions that support family resilience. If you're one of those families that benefited from the pandemic social safety nets that were put in place, or you know somebody, or you have a question, give us a call, or you can email us at allsides at WOSU.org. You're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News.
This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. The rate of child poverty in the U.S. decreased by more than half during the three decades that preceded the pandemic. And as the pandemic shut down the economy, states responded by expanding welfare programs and services. And now more states are ending these expansive policies. Advocates for children living in poverty say that's a mistake. Still with us is Dana Thompson, a senior research scientist at Child Trends, where she studies child poverty. She was, or Her work was highlighted in a recent New York Times article on this topic, and we'll have a link to that on our website at wosu.org slash allsides. Uh, Ohio State social worker professor, social work professor Michelle Johnson Motoyama examines the role of social policies and programs in supporting children and families. She co-authored a recent study that looked at how changes in state temporary assistance for needy families, or TANF, policies over time affected child protective services, involvement, and foster care placement. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Anne. Thank you for having me. How does TANF, temporary assistance for needy families, work? So... TANF has uh, four overarching goals, and that is to provide assistance to needy families, to promote job preparation and work, to reduce out-of-wedlock pregnancy, and to encourage the formation of two-parent families. And historically, uh, TANF, before uh, the 1996 welfare reforms, uh, was the AFDC program, uh, which is Aid to Families with Dependent Children. It was an entitlement program. And with the reforms that were enacted in 1996, uh, AFDC was essentially transformed into uh, a $16.5 billion uh, block program, uh, which uh, gave states uh, quite a bit of discretion in terms of how they were uh, implementing this particular program. So states have um, quite a bit of discretion uh, to use uh, TANF funding toward any of these four goals. And uh, part of that is cash assistance. So you were able to compare states then, right, and what they do and how that benefited or not children? Yes. We looked at a number of different uh, TANF rules and how those were being implemented across states. And essentially, the variation in TANF implementation across states allowed us to create uh, a, what we might think of as a natural experiment in the policy environment to see how these varying policies um, affected some of the outcomes that we were interested in looking at over time. It showed, you, you learned that about 29,000 29, fewer children would have ended up in foster care if states were less restrictive, in other words, if they were had offered more benefits. That's right, and if those benefits um, had been more generous. So what the state what states have discretion around um, are things like work requirements, um, time limits, uh, sanctions, uh, something called an earnings disregard, um, where you know this would be the piece where generosity could come in. So states do have the latitude to um, disregard certain earnings when they're calculating income eligibility. Um, some states implement suspicion-based drug testing, which presents different barriers for access. Um, so there's a variety of ways in which states um, 
can improve access and they can improve the generosity of their TANF benefits. You know, Dana Thompson, when I was reading about this, one of the things that came up repeatedly was that some people complain that it's a patchwork quilt of of policy and that's somehow inherently negative it's just a pejorative reference but that patchwork quilt nature of it is what makes it succeed so well that's right um so as i said earlier we saw um a lot of investment in programs that were aimed at um, low-income working families, but we also see continued investment and continued reach. Um, so being able to serve more families um, in, in a number of other programs. And that's really critical because the combination of those different types of programs, so programs that are conditional on work as well as programs that are not conditional on work, allow us to serve um, the very different types of families that need supports. So it allows us to serve, it allows us to encourage work, so encourage families to, to enter the workforce, but it also allows us to ensure that families that have fallen on hard times, that have challenges in accessing um, the uh, employment um, are also, their, their needs are also being met as well. How, um, Michelle Johnson Moriyama, how does the TANF picture look in Ohio? So uh, TANF policy has, has been uh, evolving over time across states, and that was part of what our study was interested in capturing, was how uh, since post-welfare reform, um, you know, states' policies have, have changed and evolved. Um, in Ohio, um, Ohio Works First, <clears throat> excuse me, is the financial portion mm -hmm. of Ohio's TANF program. And uh, in Ohio, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the maximum TANF benefit uh, is able to lift a family of three to just 30 to 39% of the federal poverty line. At least that was in 2022. And uh, this might be surprising to hear, but that's still better than, than the majority of other states. Uh, so there, um, you know, there's opportunity and, and room to um, better address uh, the needs of families. At the same time, what we have seen in Ohio and in other states is that um, applications have, have also um, dwindled. So, you know, part of that, I think, is looking at, well, why is that the case? What is it about uh, applying to TANF? Um, what is it about the requirements of TANF that, that might actually um, dissuade mm -hmm. uh, a family in need uh, from applying? And, and kind of what we've learned in some of our other work, um, and, and this is, wouldn't be you know, new information for, for anyone, is that some of these uh, programs and their application procedures um, can be quite stigmatizing for families, um, whereas we have other types of, of benefits within this patchwork quilt that are easy for families to access. Uh, you know, things like the child tax credit, the earned income tax credit, these are really easy programs once a family becomes aware of it um, to benefit from and to not uh, have that same type of stigma associated with the process of, of accessing it. We've heard a lot of, in the last couple of years about how destigmatizing free school lunch uh, made such a huge impact on, child, on, on at least nutrition uh, getting to children across 
the country. And it was, I mean, it was for poor children, certainly, but even kids along the, you know, uh, close to or not far from or, or whatever dysfunction might occur in their family, regardless of their income level, everybody was eating more lunch. Um, is uh, that Now that's something that's been pulled back pretty uh, abruptly and parents are already finding already finding that it's affecting their budget right uh dana thompson yes that's exactly right so um across the time period that our study looked we actually saw the poverty reduction role of the national school school lunch program grow from um, reducing poverty by about 3% in 1993 and it grew to reducing poverty by 7% in 2019. And a lot of that, as you mentioned, is due to tweaks to eligibility. So um, there's what we call categorical eligibility. So children who live in households that receive SNAP benefits are directly certified or automatically eligible to receive free school meals. There's also what we call community eligibility. So a school district itself can qualify for free school meals rather than individuals Mm -hmm. um, having to fill out the applications themselves. So those sorts of things are really, really critical to increasing the, reducing the red tape that Dr. Johnson Motoyama was talking about. And also by reducing that red tape that families have to go through in order to access these benefits, then increasing the reach of these programs. And as you said, Um, When we dial those back, we then see um, families struggling once again to to make ends meet. You're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. We're talking about child poverty child and and the movements away from child poverty or high child poverty rates over the last 30 plus years. Um, The success of the 30 years prior to the pandemic was only underscored by the expansion of social safety nets during the pandemic. Now states are looking to pull back on those benefits uh, to go to pre-pandemic levels, but you know things have changed since then. There's a higher rate of inflation. We know that they're not going to even cut the interest rates by as much as they thought, or they're actually going to cut increase the interest rates more going forward. It's just going to make everything more expensive. So there's a lot of uncertainty and instability, uh, Michelle Johnson, Moriyama. So what's the connection between economic instability and things, other social uh, concerns like child maltreatment, like um, foster care placements and that sort of thing? So we have about 40 years of research now that that demonstrates the relationship between um, economic hardship, economic stability, poverty, and poor outcomes for children and for families, including uh, child protective services involvement, uh, child maltreatment, and foster care entry. And we do find that we know that certain groups are disproportionately affected um, by economic insecurity uh, in this country. And we also see that mirrored in our child protective services caseloads, where we tend to see children of color who are overrepresented um, disproportionately in those caseloads and, and in the foster care system. So what is the relationship? Uh, if we if we think about family stress, and again, there are uh, several decades of research that demonstrate the way that economic insecurity and economic stress impact families, and there are direct effects. Uh, families struggle to meet their basic needs for housing, for uh, for food, 
for medical care, for those um, basic things that many of us take for granted. Uh, economic stress also has indirect effects on mental health, uh, which affects parenting in, in myriad, myriad ways. It also affects relationship quality. Uh, it affects how, how individuals within families relate to one another when they're under high levels of stress. And so all of these factors um, really create a, a, a situation uh, that can be difficult for families and can, on the one hand, increase uh, their surveillance uh, you know, by others who, who they may come into contact with, who may be mandated reporters. Teachers, so, that kind of thing, yeah. Teachers, um, social service providers, uh, others in the community. Uh, in, in some cases, you know, the intention may not be to report a family because they think child maltreatment is going on, but they may not know where else to uh, or what other way they might be able to help a family. And they know Children's Services has resources. Uh, but in any case, what you're going to see is an increase in reports um, in times of, of economic um, hardship, in times of recession, which we've seen in the past. Um, at the same time, you know, we may have families um, who, who just aren't able uh, to meet those needs, and some of that can be construed as child maltreatment by the, the child welfare system itself. So for those reasons, um, if a family can't provide housing, uh, the alternative may be foster care for that particular family. Right, and research shown that 29,000 fewer children would have ended up in foster care if states were less restrictive in offering the, the supports. And this becomes a vicious cycle, does it not, Dana Thompson? Because you could save a lot of money at the front end by taking care of the back end, not, you know, giving people, I should say, you can save a lot of money at the back end by spending and investing money at the front end. That's exactly right. And we have actually um, seen research on exactly that. So the impact of these safety net programs on children's health and well-being um, is really an understated and, and critically important part of this story. Our school systems, our healthcare systems, our child welfare systems, our juvenile justice systems, among others, spend considerable resources to address, as you said the downstream costs of child poverty and by some estimates child poverty is actually costing the nation about one trillion trillion dollars a year and for every dollar we spend preventing child poverty in the first place we would save over seven times that much on the back end on the back end when it comes to um, um, foster Re care placements uh, child crime child adjudication the whole thing exactly right um what so we talked about the school lunch program, um, Michelle, and that's one that during the pandemic was very destigmatized because it was offered to all children. Are there any other examples of what has been destigmatized that's working? Yeah. Uh, studies really do point to um, the child tax credit, the earned income tax credit. We do see those programs also uh, associated with reductions in child protective services utilization, foster care entry. Uh, there's also an interesting area of research um, on basic income experiments uh, that, that are expanding across the country. Uh, here in Ohio, there's um, uh, some work being done by the Yellow Springs Community Foundation in, in Yellow Springs. and Is this like a guaranteed basic income? Guaranteed kind of basic yeah. income. 
And while these studies haven't looked specifically at child protective services um, or foster care as uh, endpoints, um, you know, what we are learning from those experiments is that uh, they are having positive effects on children and families. And it's it's interesting to hear the stories about how those programs um, are affecting people and what they're freeing people up to do, like pursue education, like pursue employment opportunities they hadn't thought about, how they're better to able care able to better care for their children um, because they do have that economic security. So going forward, I think those are going to be interesting um, programs to look at in relation to some of these outcomes we're interested in as well. I guess businesses could just pay living wages. Yes, I Isn't think that, that like is kind of the bottom line. That here? is the bottom line. And and I think when people push back on the safety net and they push back on public assistance programs, it's it's really without acknowledging uh, the employment situation that many families find themselves in where workers are not protected. They don't have living wages. They don't have the benefits they need um, to to really provide for their families in the way that other people might. I think the other piece of it is uh, we need to recognize that we're, we're not in a perfect economy, and we're also not in a perfect market situation where everyone is employable uh, with a living wage. So what is that? Le- where does that leave us? It leaves us with... Um, a challenge, you know, that we have to think about societally in terms of how we're going to address the safety net programs that are in place uh, today, TANF, SNAP. Um, it's it's interesting uh, to kind of look at when some of those programs were created historically and to look at the, the fact that they're about retirement age right now. And so I think we have a, a good opportunity to think about what is working and what really needs to be retired and what would um, an, an innovative, modern uh, safety net look look like today? And how does employment and living wages, how do those things factor into what we're trying to do societally? Do you agree that the patchwork quilt, which again has a kind of a pejorative uh, sound to it, is actually, when it's fluid and has a lot of different sorts of options, is a benefit? I think there can be benefits to it. But I also think that we are we have a very systems focused kind of safety net it's not family centered or or really focused on the individuals who have to navigate it so if you kind of look at our safety net and our public programs um, while there have been efforts to make it easier to access so for example ohio um, has has a portal you know that families can apply through Um, but yet Time and time again, you know, families may have to fill out an application uh, for eligibility for each of these programs. Uh, there, there's a lot of red tape, um, and from the the perspective of providers, it's also very challenging to to guide a family through the system. So, um, while there can be benefits, uh, I think there are lots of opportunities uh, for alignment and for thinking about how we can make. Um, our systems, our programs, our policies, uh, really human-centered. And, and easier to access. And easier to and access. And less stigmatizing. Yes. Uh, Michelle Johnson-Motoyama, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you very much, Anne. Michelle Johnson Motoyama is a researcher and professor at Ohio State. She published a recent study examining how influential TANF, uh, that is uh, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, benefits are in securing safety for children. We have more coming up, so stay with us. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. During the pandemic, more Americans qualified for food assistance and cash aid, and it helped a lot. One nonpartisan study found that the food benefits alone kept more than 4 million Americans above the poverty line and lowered child poverty by 14%. Now, many states are returning to pre-pandemic levels of assistance. Over 700,000 Ohioans will be affected by the cuts, which took effect in March. We're talking about the impacts on children. Still with us is Dana Thompson, Senior Research Scientist at Child Trends, where she studies child poverty, and her work was highlighted in a recent New York Times article uh, on child poverty and the impact uh, of uh, social safety nets and um, the pandemic. We'll have a link to that on our website at WOSU.org slash all sides. Lisa Hamler-Fugit is executive director of the Ohio Association of Food Banks. Her organization represents 12 food banks and 3,600 pantries across Ohio. Welcome back, Lisa. Well, thanks for having me, Ann. Good to be here. Um, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about government safety nets. This is a non-governmental organization. You benefit from some government policies, but this is outside of that, uh, uh, I guess, equation. And I would say that the people that we have seen over the pandemic, three years now into this pandemic, benefited immensely from the pandemic area policies, as well as food banks. I mean, uh, we were able to secure additional government commodities. But for those who received enhanced um, premium tax credits, child tax credits, what we know about their spending patterns is they were standing in grocery store checkout lines instead of food pantry and uh, food bank lines. So this is uh, the pandemic air benefits worked. It pumped uh, trillions of dollars into our economy on everything from health care to child care to food assistance benefits. And particularly what we're concerned about is the uh, loss of the enhanced um, emergency allotments of SNAP. Those have brought over $1.4 billion a year into the purchasing power of low-income Ohioans who are poor enough to qualify for that program. And nearly 60% of all those benefits went to children and seniors. 
So those benefits are gone. The last benefits were loaded at the end of last month, and now everything reverts back to pre-pandemic uh, levels of issuance. Has it changed the situation at the food banks? Well, that's a uh, what we started to see is as these other pandemic air benefits, the stimulus benefits, the stimulus checks, as well as the enhanced child tax credits and earned income tax credits begin to expire, our numbers began creeping up. Prior to that, those families that were the recipients of those benefits were able to meet their basic needs. So throughout the latter part of 2022, our numbers crept up. And unfortunately, in the fourth quarter of uh 2022, the last data we have available, food banks in the state of Ohio broke an all-time record of 3.1 million Ohioans turned to a local food bank, food pantry, or soup kitchen, many citing that the loss of the benefits as well as inflationary costs, there wasn't any room left in their budgets. And the fastest segment of the population that we saw turning to us were persons over the age of 60, out of the workforce, or disabled. It's it kind of it's sort of stunning that we're in this high employment, high rate of employment, a high inflation, but still a lot of people have jobs. Dana Thompson, um, you know, what do you do then? Is it just that they're just not paid enough? So that is a big part of the story here. Um, we have seen that wages are really just too low for a large number of families to be able to make, make ends meet at the end of the day. Um, so that was highlighted in the example of the Ohio um, woman in our report, mm -hmm. that even though she made $3 or so above the minimum wage and worked full time, she was still several thousand dollars below the poverty threshold and unable to pay the bills, put food on the table for her family with children. And we're just, just starting to wade into what is going to be an historic challenge with housing and housing costs. There's both a housing shortage and a ridiculously high cost to housing uh, that they say there's no way that they can catch up to what the demand is going to be. And in a place like central Ohio, that's a big problem um, already. Um, the, the cycle of poverty and, and, and housing instability for children is a big part of this whole question. That's right. And I think it's really important to note that while we've seen this huge decline over the past 25 years, in child poverty. Um, so in statistically, who is above or below this kind of arbitrary threshold, that does not at all mean that families who are above that threshold are not, you know, really struggling financially. And it also doesn't necessarily mean that we're seeing as dramatic declines in things like housing security or food insecurity. So a family can receive um, benefits like, for instance, the in earned income tax credit at a certain time of year, but that doesn't mean that during other times of the year, um, they're not still struggling to put food on the table. So we can see things like food insecurity or housing insecurity still stay up at, 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 levels that are, are too high, even as we see declines in, in poverty itself. You know, and to your point, Lisa Hamler-Fugit, about 
older people representing a larger portion of uh, your increased clientele at the food banks. Um, there was a guy that was re re uh, they mentioned in the New York Times article that I talked about who was able to get off the street, able to get into stable housing because of the expanded uh, uh, SNAP benefits. Um, and and he's worried now it's going to go down from it's going to go down something like 400 percent for him. And it's going to make a huge difference and may destabilize destabilize them again. Yeah, and it's going to destabilize a lot of households, including uh, low-income working households, single uh, parent households with children. I just want to give you an example of the, the magnitude of the cut here. With the emergency allotments that were made available through the pandemic air benefits, a single uh, head of household with one child uh, received on average about $430 a month. Um, so about $107 a week to be able to purchase food, $14.33 a day. So break it down in days. Mm -hmm. So that's six meals a day for both uh, both the parent and the child. That's going to be reduced um, after this cut goes through. It's going to drop down um, substantially to just $2.80 a day or about 46 cents uh, per meal. So that is a tremendous loss uh, of $346 a month, just for that family alone. And the cuts grow, grow much deeper, uh, depending on the household size, including senior-headed households with minor children, including uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So this is across-the-board cut, uh, and that we are bracing right now for its impact at the local level. There are things that the state certainly can do um, that we are encouraging them strongly to do. One, we need to be able to safeguard. If children are truly our future, then we need to invest some of the stimulus money that the state still has remaining in things like universal free meals, which we lost, again, as a result of the pandemic era benefit. In, in, in schools. Yeah. In schools, right, mm -hmm. regardless of your zip code. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's go ahead and expand universal free meals. We know that the pandemic uh, electronic benefits transfer that provide additional benefits to families, uh, that's important. The state could provide a refundable earned income tax credit making work pay for low-income families so they could be standing in grocery store checkout lines. What do you mean a refundable Currently, ours income. is a credit. It's not refundable, meaning that they, if they have a tax liability, it can reduce their tax liability, but it's not money going out per se, like the federal earned income tax okay. credit, which is refundable. Uh, and so if I could jump... Yeah, sure. If I could jump in here to say that's really, really important because a lot of families in deep poverty actually don't, because they don't have a tax liability, they don't have to file taxes in the first place. So they are not receiving the credit because they are their incomes are just too low to begin with. When the credit becomes refundable, then that means that even if they have no tax liability, they still receive a check from the government for that a credit and, it, and it's particularly important for families in deep poverty. Does the lack of that, is that a function of states saying we can't afford it or a function of they don't like the policy or just a, um, what, what in Ohio, Lisa? A lack of political will. Okay. Um, we could easily fund a refundable earned income tax credit by closing tax loopholes, including the LLC. 
a loophole. Legal, uh, I mean, sorry. Limited liability. Limited liability. Corporations where people who are single proprietors don't pay any taxes on income up to $250,000 a year. Other states have done this. I mean, uh, funding universal free meals in Colorado is being done right now by assessing a modest tax on households over $400,000 a year. You know, we have learned a lot of lessons as a result of COVID and the pandemic era policies that have been put in place. We cannot afford to lose the ground that we have gained, especially as it relates to child poverty. Again, if children are a future, then it's time that we invest in them now. What does history tell us, Dana Thompson, about if these potential, well, these rollbacks that are taking effect now? And, and if they have a disproportionate, if their impact is more, is disproportionate to what the dollars and cents that we're looking at is? I don't know if that makes sense, but if it's a greater cost down the road by doing this now after they've had it and then doing takeaways. I see what you're you're asking. Um, I do think any loss of um, income support programs, any loss of these nutrition assistance, these um, housing assistance programs will um will result in costs down the road in terms of, you know, as we mentioned, um, in terms of the the um, societal costs that we ultimately pay um, through our education systems, our child welfare systems, our juvenile justice systems, in terms of addressing um, um, some of the the issues down the road. And then I just wanted to just real quickly, Dana about the impact of non-governmental organizations like, you know, the Ohio Association of Food Banks. Um, How long can it go on that these kinds of organizations pick up the slack? That's a great question. Um, So we have seen these community-based organizations really play an incredible role during the pandemic. So food banks, diaper banks, we've also seen schools, um, early child and um, education centers um, really increase their supports for families. Sometimes that's providing meals, sometimes that's providing resources for families and connecting them to other community-based resources. That has been a critical um, critical support during the pandemic. Um, I think it's also a, a very understudied support. So we do see um, those types of supports throughout our history. Um, church organizations, um, community-based organizations. YWCA, I mean, every, all of it. Yes, they often step up and kind of fill the gaps here. And I think that's really important to, to study a little bit more in depth. Dana Thompson, a senior researcher at Child Trends, where she studies child poverty. You can learn more about the organization. They were highlighted in in a recent New York Times article on child poverty. Uh, We'll have a link to that on our website at WOSU.org slash all sides. Dana Thompson, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And Lisa Hamler-Fugit, we'll have you back again very soon, the executive director of the Ohio Association of Food Banks. Always appreciate your insights. Thank you, Anne, and congratulations on your retirement. <laughs> you are going to be dearly missed. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks to everybody else out there for listening. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. Mm-hmm.